Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for the opportunity to come together and to study your word. God, what it is that you teach us in this passage is quite beautiful, and I pray right now that you would open up our hearts and our spirits, our minds, to all it is that you're inviting us to do. And we ask, Lord, right now that you would meet us here, that we'd become aware of your presence, and that as we study your text, we'd become more like you, and that we would grow together as a community for your glory and your kingdom alone. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Exodus chapter 24, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Avihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord, and the others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And they sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as a fellowship offering to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Let me just stop our reading right there for a moment and unpack just a little bit very briefly, because this is not a common thing, right? In fact, we actually don't have any other place in the Bible where blood is being tossed on people. So um, it's a little bit odd. It's not something we're accustomed to. But the concept of blood and a blood covenant is not foreign to the ancient world, nor actually to a lot of us who've been studying the biblical text. Remember back in Genesis, Abraham and God cut a deal. And they cut a very series of animals and animals and birds that are available. And then those, the blood between those animals comes between the path. And then God walks through that path twice. So we have picture again of blood coming into covenant. Anyone, when you were a kid, did you hear about like blood brothers or blood sisters, right? I mean, this was maybe before the days of HIV. Um, but a lot of us grew up, I grew up with, we, were, we always elected to spit. Because we were too squeamish. Nobody wanted it, right? And you do a spit. Anybody? I'm the only weird one, right? It was something that, like, you did. It was like, okay, we're going to be blood brothers. We're going to be blood sisters. And this is our new way. It's, it's part of our language. Remember that when Moses is escaping um, out of Egypt, he meets his beautiful bride at a well. And later on, she will save his life as he's going back to Egypt. And when she saves his life, she will say, you, this is the covenant of blood. You are bridegroom of blood to me. And it's a weird thing, but it's come back in there. We have this concept of circumcision. That's part of that story. That There's blood. So this concept of covenant and blood is part of our biblical story. It's weird to us. And yet we're also those of us who are followers of Jesus accustomed to this concept because we talk about without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And Jesus himself died on the cross for us. So this concept of blood as part of a covenant is a biblical concept, and it appears here. Now, if you're critical, which is a good thing, and thoughtful person, you're going to sit and say, okay, but how did Moses do that? Because there's like 600,000 people there. 
So as he's sprinkling blood on all the people, well, there's a suggestion that either the elders are standing in the place of Israel, though the 70 elders, or those 12 pillars that he sets up at the beginning representing the 12 tribes of Israel is actually what he throws and sprinkles that blood on in order to sort of represent through God the sprinkling of the blood on the altar, God's portion of the covenant, and through the people, either the pillars or the uh, elders who are resting there and standing in place of the people. Kind of cool? Makes sense? I mean, I know it's weird and it's going to sound weird, but in that time it wasn't weird and it was a common practice. One of the reasons behind this is because in the picture of blood is life. And remember when Cain kills Abel, God says to Cain, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And God also prevents the Israelites from drinking any blood because it's life in it. So a lot of it has this precious understanding and gift of it, that there is life here. And that something had to die in order to produce that. So that's just a little bit of that. I know it's weird, but we're not going to preach a whole bunch about it. We're just going to stop right there and say, that's, does that kind of help a little bit? It's weird, but it's what people did. And if you're in third grade or second grade, maybe you did it too and you just didn't know you were part of a very ancient Near Eastern tradition. Okay. All right, so back to our text, Exodus chapter 24, verse 9. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Avihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. What? Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli as bright as the blue sky just stop there again really quick. They'll debate, scholars debate, is it lapis lazuli? Is it something like sapphire? And if they saw God, how come there's no description of it? And so they're really, and later on in Deuteronomy, it'll say, you saw nothing, you saw no form. And the only thing mentioned here, this anthropomorphism, this sort of human term used for God that's put here is about God's feet and not even his feet. It's about what's under his feet. So most scholars and the rabbis interpreted this passage to say they apprehended the presence of God, but it wasn't actually something that they could really see. You guys should debate and someday ask somebody. Just put a pin in it, you know, get to heaven someday, say, hey, so what was that? Nadab? I remember your name because it's weird. And so tell me, did you actually see something and what was it you saw? Or did you just simply experience it? And the rabbis will lean back into texts like the beginning of Isaiah or Ezekiel or other prophetic experience where they'll say, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. And so they'll talk about how it's a vision. It's something like that that's happening. I'm going to leave it to you to debate and discuss, but let's continue on in our text. Verse 11, but God, so they've seen God, but they're not going to die. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments, the Torah and the mitzvahot. I have written for their instruction. And then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. It's just an interesting ad that Moses seems to know that he's going to be gone for a little while. Because he set up the people that are in charge while he's up on the mountain. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And for six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, to the glory of the, the to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. 
And then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. There's the end of our reading from chapter 24. The title of this message this evening is Come Up to Me and Be There. God says this tremendous, amazing thing to Moses, and it's very simple in the Hebrew. He really, quite literally says, it's going to go, by the way, from right to left, so don't get confused because it's, it's Hebrew, so I've translated for you underneath, yeah? And said Adonai to Moses, come up to me, the mountain, the on is sort of implied, come up to me, the mountain, and be there. Vahiye sham, and be there. And be there. Come up to me on the mountain and be there. So this is the mountain that we're talking about, the general range of Mount Sinai. And again, people can debate actual location, but this is quite a beautiful view. And God says to Moses, come up with me and be there. It's an interesting phrase, right? Just come up. That would be enough. Come up with me. We got that. What is it that might be behind this picture of and be there? Now, a lot of times when we today talk about spending time with God, what are one of the first things, particularly those of you who are in IV or Campus Crusade or like nice college groups or high school groups, what did you always talk about? Like, well, I got to go be with God, and so I'm going to go do my QT. Anyone? My quiet time, right? And so we talk about quiet time, and this is like Moses' best quiet time ever, right? He's going to get invited up onto the mountain with God and hang out there for 40 days and 40 nights, this period of preparation and testing and an important number in the Bible, and he's going to have the best quiet time ever with God. He's just going to hang out, right? Now, many of us who do quiet times, what's the problem with a quiet time? Anybody want to volunteer? What might have been challenging for you for a quiet time. And if you've never had a problem, don't talk. We don't like you. Yes. Early in the morning or late at night because you're busy through the day. Or did they assign that? Like where people like, you have to do it first thing in the morning so you prepare your heart for God. Okay. So yeah. So first thing in the morning. So those of us who aren't morning people, we're already failures. We're never going to make it, right? We're like, oh, okay. And then we've, we took maybe a class, like quiet time with God, a how-to series. We're like, sweet. Okay. Because I fail at this every year. I succeed for about 20 to 25 days every January. And then after that, about day 21, day 22, me and God, we are not hanging out anymore. And I just feel guilty about it. And then I don't tell any of my accountability partners in my life because dear God, Like they're going to be like, well, I got my QT down. And then also, isn't there always somebody that's like, oh my gosh, today in my quiet time with God. And immediately right then you're like, you suck. Right. Or then you're like, I suck. Like, I'm just like immediately right there. We're like, I am in a terrible spot. So today in my quiet time with God, like the Lord was just so present and he just totally spoke to me and I changed my whole day. And I told, and then I had this incredible encounter at the coffee shop and you're like, that's amazing. And why isn't that happening for me? Something must be wrong with me. I am terrible at quiet times. I am a failure. That's my exit. I'm never going to try to do a quiet time again. Anyone? Yes? Good. And then how much Christian guilt is laid on you for like the fact that you don't do the quiet time? Even if no one said a word, it's internal, right? Just so we're clear, we did just teach on the Ten Commandments and not once in those top ten did we ever hear, and thou shalt have a quiet time. Every morning and every afternoon and every evening, and if thou doesn't this, thou shalt feel like a failure. 
right? So there's nothing in there. Now, that is not to say that there's not something incredibly valid about trying to seek out and spend some time with God, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But I want to just acknowledge that oftentimes within our Christian communities, um, and this happens with lots of different things, but we already feel enough pressure on ourselves to try to spend time with God, feel guilty about it, feel guilty if that time hasn't been manufactured some way. Then we try to you know, talk about it. Somebody will say, well, my quiet time was amazing. How was yours? And then you lie. So then you're like, well, I feel bad about lying. So I lied about God talking to me. So I just want to set all that aside and say, let's not identify this passage with QT. All right. Let's set that aside and try to figure out what it is that God might be inviting Moses and therefore a picture of what I think God would like to invite the rest of us to do. Sound okay? All right. Thanks for joining me in my Christian failings. I really appreciate that because I love my quiet time and it works for a while and then it falls again. And if a pastor's never told you that and then you want to leave right now because you just heard that your pastor's quiet time life is a little bit challenging, well, I understand. You could pray for me. I'll pray for you. You're judging. So I don't know. I think that's a bigger sin. So I was saying, all right. So as we sit down to pray and as we're sort of set up for this quiet time, we're going to grab our Bible. Someone's going to give us this little verse and then we're going to sit and pray. And what's one of the first things that happens to you? And again, if this doesn't happen to you, don't talk to us. We're not interested in your story. If if you're a normal person, what's one of the first things that happens as you start to sit and try to have some quiet space, time away and prayer with God? Okay, great. So I'm glad I'm not the only one that gets distracted. So immediately, what do you start doing? You're like, okay, dear Jesus. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, you're so awesome. Oh, I have to get cantaloupe. Uh, You know, and I need to do X, Y, and Z, and the kids are crazy, and my boss is such a jerk. Oh, wait. Oh, shoot. I'm supposed to be praying. Okay, dear Jesus, please help my boss who's being a jerk, right? So then you you feel guilty about the fact that you're distracted. How does that happen, right? Immediately, I'm a terrible Christian. I can't pray for two minutes. It's been literally a minute and a half. I've already sinned in my quiet time. So immediately during our prayer time, we're distracted. We're frustrated. We're angry. We feel like we're failures. We feel like everyone else has it right, and we have it terrible wrong and we don't know what to do. Right? All of that. We feel like that. That poor baby. We're like, no. So I'm glad I'm not the only one. And I'd like to give you this very helpful tool just for a really quick moment when you're in those places where you are trying to spend some time with God and you immediately get distracted rather than judging yourself, rather than starting to say, I'm a terrible, horrible Jesus follower and I shouldn't ever wear a cross and I have to go take the bumper sticker off my car. Whatever it is, at that point, I want to encourage us to develop a sense of compassion for ourselves. Trusting That indeed, one of the reasons why we fail in our space and in our time with God is because we're so harsh. We're so difficult to ourselves right away. And we don't extend the same compassion that we would extend to someone else, nor do we even invite Jesus to be compassionate towards us as we're struggling. So as we're sitting there and we're praying, we're trying to find some time with God, and we're trying to get quiet and some space away, and then we get distracted, just gently bring yourself back. No guilt. Oh, thank you, God, for reminding me that I do have to do grocery shopping later on. Okay, thanks. And pray back. Just be compassionate towards yourself. 
you don't have to feel bad about that. Maybe God wanted to remind you right then of your shopping list. Maybe God wanted to remind you that you are harboring something against this person in your life that you're pretty frustrated at. And so when that popped up right there, that first bubble, that was God even in that. And as we develop this deep sense of compassion for ourselves, we're leaning more into Jesus. We're leaning more into a compassionate God. Right? Like if you sat down with a friend that you hadn't seen for a long time, if you sat down with that beloved, amazing person, okay, your mother. Your mother deeply wants to spend time with you, right? And as you're sitting and you're spending time with your mom and you're there, you get distracted or you start saying something you wish you hadn't said. If you bring it back, your mom's still happy to be with you, most of us. How much more so than your Heavenly Father? How much more so is it that your Heavenly Father and mine deeply wants to spend time with us? And isn't very upset that in our attempt to spend some time, we got a little distracted. In fact, maybe he's in the distraction. So lean into that compassion that Jesus so wonderfully demonstrates throughout his life. And give that back to yourself. Ask Jesus to give you that compassion if you start feeling that judging, loathing, self, all that to there. Now, I just want to confess one other thing that happens to me whenever I try to spend some time with God. Um... I was doing a spiritual practices uh, certification for spiritual directors, and one of our assignments was go on a date with God. And as soon as I got this assignment, I was like, oh, so cheesy, Christians. Go on a date with God. Like, I was really irritated about it. I know I'm a pastor, right? But it's true. And I was sitting there, and I was frustrated with it, and I just, the whole time I kept saying, you know, I don't date God. Like, I follow God. Like, that's why we Christians do this. I mean, I had all this judgment for it, which should have been my first clue, and all these issues as I was trying to get frustrated. And I go on dates with my husband. So I have a high expectation for a date with my husband. I, I expect... A, a nice meal. I expect us to be able to sit and have a long conversation together. I expect him to show up, right? So there's a lot. When I even think of the word date, because my husband and I have a date every Thursday night, and we have for years and years and years. We'll be 17 years married this year. And so as we have this date, I have a high expectation for that time. So even the word date with God, I'm already like, this is going to be trouble. Because honestly, this is what I feel like. I'm going to be sitting at the bar and God's not coming. Anyone? Isn't that one of our primary fears that when we're going to spend time with God and we carve out that time, one of the reasons at least that I'm resistant to keeping that time is because I'm afraid he's not showing up. Honest. I'm afraid I'm going to be sitting there. There's nothing more embarrassing than sitting there and going, oh, I'm sure he's coming. Um, No, he showed up for you. That's so great. I totally believe he will show up on time for you. I think he's busy. He got stuck in traffic. He had to, I'm sure he's saving a child from a burning building, right? Like you make the excuses to all of the rest of your friends as to why the person didn't show up. And there have been seasons and times in my life where I have felt like I'm going to get stood up at that appointment. Because all of those things that we talk about, like I'm going to sense the presence of God. And because I have those pressures too of the last person I talked to, that like the best quiet time of their life and the best devotion time of life. And I'm like, well, what is wrong with me? Do I have to pray it a different way? Do I have to say it a different way? Am I not doing it consistently enough? And all of the judgment and all of the frustration and all of the difficulties and all of the doubt pour into that moment. And then why even want to show up at the moment? Anyone? It's easier to not go. It's easier to never decide and find out whether or not God showed up. So this is what I journaled about for my spiritual director. I was like, this is a ridiculous assignment. And as I'm journaling about it, I'm like starting to process and I'm realizing Oh, I think God's not going to show up. And worse, here's my other alternative. 
frequently for me, I think he might come, but we might not be talking. Because I'm kind of frustrated about a few things. And so then we're going to, nothing worse than going on a date and having an argument. You get all dolled up. Everyone's all ready and prepared for the romance, the wonderful moment of the date. And instead you end up having a tense moment. Anyone? No one? And then what's worse? The car ride home, man. Both of you hugging the far opposite sides of the car, like leaning like, oh my gosh, why is this light so long? This light's never been this long in my life. Hi, yeah, okay. Please get me out of this car. I don't want to be with this person any longer. So if God and I are going to show up on this date and we're going to have this tough conversation, then that's not the way I want quiet time to go either. That's not my moment with God. I want to sit and I want to have this high expectation for this beautiful moment where God and I are going to hang out and it's all going to be wonderful and great and I'm not going to be distracted and I'm going to be able to tell some story over the water cooler. It's probably not true. And sit and say about how all wonderful it was. One of the reasons why we're resistant to going up and spending time with God is because of all these pressures and expectations to that moment. Now, at the end of my journaling session, I realized, here's my confession, here's the truth. I think God's there waiting for me. And I'm the one not walking in. But it took processing and not judging all of my resistance to the assignment in order to get to the place where I realized I wasn't walking in. He had invited me, and I wasn't going. Now, that's not a guilt or judgment thing. That was just the reality. I was afraid he wasn't there. I was afraid he was, I was sure he was there for everybody else. All of you, God's totally going to be there. I just think right now he's busy and he's not going to be there for me. It's not something you really think, right? It's just an unconscious thing as you're processing your relationship. Anybody? No? Yes? Okay, great. All right. Henry Nowen says this. We often feel a real desire to pray. But then at the same time, we experience a strong resistance. Have you had that? I want to go and be with God, and and somehow I'm not going, and I don't want to go. We want to move closer to God, the source and goal of our existence. But at the same time, we realize that the closer we come to God, the stronger will be God's demand to let go of the many safe structures we have built around ourselves. So the closer I go to God, the stronger the demand is for me to let go of my control. To let go of the way that I want that date to go. To let go of all of my expectations of what that time's going to look like, right? To sit there and to say, okay, God, this is what it's supposed to look like. Here's my agenda. Here's the meeting. Here's what I want you to do. World hunger, thank you very much. Injustices, I need that checked off my list. I'm really frustrated about human trafficking. I have all these frustrations in my personal life. I don't feel like you're fighting for us anymore. Where are you, God? And how are you going to show up? And in all of those things, I'm going to be confronted as I go in and spend that time with God with all of those safeties that I've put up to protect my heart from having to follow a God that sometimes doesn't conform, in fact, never conforms to my own will, right? It's his will, not mine. So our prayer time, our coming up with God is a challenge. Our sitting and being with God is a challenge because all of that, all of those distractions, all of the failures and frustrations, all of the fear in it, all of that bubbles up for us in those first few moments. And many of us never get beyond the first five moments. Okay, well, I tried. It didn't work. This might be why this verse is in our text. Verse 15. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And for six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. Within the cloud. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. 
Moses sat there for six days. Imagine his list in his head. Manna, check. Did we get that? You know, like all of the things that Moses has been managing for all of those persons. Maybe God deeply understands and knows that Moses is going to need six days to quiet down before God can speak. And there's a beautiful picture of another recreation here. Those of you guys who did our Genesis series, we hear another recreation of the world. That God is reordering the world, setting it back up and breathing again new life. And on the seventh day, the day of completion, this beautiful day of rest, God speaks and spends time with Moses. But we need these six days of preparation. God is rebuilding a new beginning. And isn't that a little bit of what happens when we come to him? He rebuilds. He provides a new beginning, a fresh start to our day. One of the reasons we start in the morning oftentimes. Although if you're a night owl, start at night. It's okay, right? All of those things. Isn't it interesting that for six days, Moses just has to sit there? So the next time you're in your quiet time and only six minutes have passed, and you're like, well, that was nothing. God didn't show up. I only got distracted and frustrated, and now I'm done. Just give it another six days. See if God will show up six days later and see, see what happens. So keep calm, six days to go, right? Next time you're doing some attempt to spend time with the creator of the universe, just remember to be calm. You've got a whole week to figure it out. And then again, every seven days as that day cycles, another chance to start afresh, another chance to start new, a recreation, a new beginning. Now God says to Moses, this beautiful thing, come. He says it to Abraham, come follow me. He says it to Moses, come up on the mountain. Jesus himself will say it to the disciples, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That in this coming, there is some movement, right? And the come isn't about God moving, God doing something big. It's about us moving. It's about us moving in our awareness of what and who is already there. We are seeking to find the presence of God, and it requires some movement in us. He is here. In fact, I have this beautiful thing in my house that my husband gave me for my birthday this last year. Bidden or not bidden, God is present. Bidden's a fancy word for come, right? Called. So called or not called, God is present. And I love having this right in the front room of my house. Whether I remember to call on God or not call on God, God is present. The question is whether or not I will move. Not whether or not he is here. The question is whether or not I move and whether or not I will come. So God calls to Moses and says, come. And I think that that call is present for all of us here today too. Come. He's already in the restaurant sitting at the bar waiting, right? To use that picture that was in my life at that time. He's already sitting with us waiting. We won't be stood up. He's already there. So come. It's about some movement on our part. And the next thing I think we should remember when we're talking about spending some time is that God says to Moses, come and be. And I'm just going to add on to that, be loved. These beautiful words that God says to Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And imagine what that would do if every time you spent time with God, you had your identity solidified in the fact that you are beloved. 
As Jesus starts his earthly ministry here on earth, his identity is immediately solidified as the beloved one. Loved, beloved by the Father. Mark says that as this dove descends and the voice from heaven speaks, that it ripped heaven open. Mark uses this word in the Greek. Like, God can't wait to shout. This is my son, my beloved son, and with whom I am very well pleased. Now, if this were what we were experiencing when we came to spend time with God, wouldn't we be rushing to that moment? I can't wait to spend time with God today because the first thing I'm going to hear is, you are beloved. And God is pleased with you. And then you start to live in that identity, that you are the beloved of God. Henry Nouwen, again, it's a beautiful quote. Prayer is listening to that voice, to the one who calls you the beloved. It is to constantly go back to the truth of who we are. It's not what I do or what I have. Prayer means entering into communion with the one who loved us before we could love. It is this first love that is revealed to us in prayer. If we step into time with God where the first moments we spend are just simply being with him in that cloud those six days and starting to experience the truth of who he is, the one who deeply and desperately loves our soul, all of us, and we start to live into the identity of being beloved by God, his daughters, his sons, loved by God, then wouldn't we start living the rest of that day differently? And wouldn't that experience be more transformational than any laundry list of things that we need God to do for us? Because the rest of our day would be shaped by the fact that we're walking around and we're saying that we are with God, God is with us, and that we are his beloved. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus calls the 12 disciples, and it says this, He appointed 12 that they might be with him, and that they might send, he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. This is a God, and this is weird because this does not happen anywhere else in any ancient Near Eastern literature or any other religious literature in the world. There is no such thing as a God that's just trying to be with you. But that's what he says to Moses, and that's what Jesus says to the disciples, that he is choosing us to be with him. And he says to Moses, come up here. Come up to me on this mountain and be there. Just be there, Moses. Just be there. Because oftentimes we're present, but we're not present. If you have a kid that you've ever spent time with, right? Like, are you, did you see me? Did you see me? And you're just like watching the same spin 16 minutes, 16 times over again. But they want you to be present present. Not just with, but with. Not just there, but there, right? Have you ever had that conversation with somebody where you're like, I'm pretty sure right now I could just drop information about aliens, and they would have not noticed at all, right? I've actually had a conversation with somebody. I think they thought I was super impressed by them. I'm not exactly sure. And in that conversation, I could tell they weren't listening to a word that I said. They were looking for the more important person in the room to go and talk to. Anybody have that experience? 
And I started talking about aliens, and they just kept smiling and nodding. I was like, wow, that just happened. Somebody who loves Jesus very much, by the way. And I really believe that they do. Sometimes we're present, but we're not present. We're there, but we're not there. And Jesus is calling us to be with him, to be present. And that's what God is calling Moses to do. Come up here and be there. Just be there. And it's not just this Zen thing, like, let's just be, man, let's just be. It's not that. It's God's call is to be with him. He's saying, come be with me. The quiet time, if we continue to use that QT word for it, right? It's not about accomplishing something. It's not about being transformed. It's not about hearing a special word from God that nobody else has ever heard before. It's not about having now some special insight into the text that you've never had before. It is about simply being with the one that calls you beloved. Just be with him. That's it. It's hard, by the way. What I'm suggesting is a very hard thing to do. But we can simply be with him. Rob Bell says this, Jesus invites us to an experience, to a full, vibrant, dynamic, electric life of God, which he insists is available to every single one of us right here, right now. And I, th- I really, truly believe that's true. Now, I'm not sure that it's always electric, right? I think sometimes it's quiet and sometimes it's lonely. But I think we're invited in. We are invited up. So what I'm hoping that we're going to do this week as a community, and you can text me or call me or email me and tell me how it goes, is that for six days, I would like us just to show up to some moment of time with God, and I'm not going to tell you when or how long or lay any rules on it at all. And all I'd like you to do is just in some time with God, and you can write this on your mirror with a dry erase marker or your car window or whatever it is, Abba, I'm beloved. Abba is this Hebrew word for father, right? You can hear all these kiddos calling their dads Abba all around. And I think it would be beautiful if we just, for a week, for six days, no agenda, no list of things we want God to do for us, no expectations of giant speaking voice from on high, right? Instead, just for six days, for one week, and then we'll be back here again on the seventh day, we'll just say, hey, Abba, I'm beloved. That's it. And you can say it over and over and over again. If you run, say it on a run. It's great. Abba, I'm beloved. I am beloved. I belong to you. That's it. That's your prayer for the whole week. Six days. I feel like we have biblical precedent for this, so I'm going to hang with it, okay? So six days, and then you can decide if God shows up in a giant cloud on the seventh day. Maybe it's going to take, you know, Moses was pretty special. Maybe it's going to take more than six days for me. You, you're, I'm sure you'll, I can tell you're all very, very wonderful people. You're so close to Jesus, it'll just happen right away. I did get the certificate in spiritual direction, by the way. So, you know, I don't have any of these problems anymore now that I got my certificate program. I'm joking, everybody. It's a joke. You can laugh. Okay. So we're going to now keep calm and know that you are beloved. That God wants to commune with us. And this is the crazy part. I heard some of you say a little bit of a noise, some murmur, because it was such a weird part of our text. Then verse 11, God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Yeah, we're going to do that today. 
We're going to eat yummy tacos. We're going to have delicious beverages. Tony is still here. We try to provide this communion every single weekend here at Spark. We try to provide some space and some way in which we together can commune with one another and with God. Now, we don't know exactly what this means. Does this mean that after they saw God, there's proof that they were still living because they could still do a physical thing like eat and drink? Does this mean that they actually supped with God and hung out? Well, I think it's possible that maybe they supped with God. Whatever that means, we know that God is not a human being and he's not a God to be offered food to and all of those types of things. But we do have some New Testament uh, precedent for God sitting and hanging out. Um, particularly after the resurrection, Jesus sits on the Sea of Galilee and calls out to the disciples, friends, have you caught any fish? It's the end of the book of John. And after the disciples realize it's him, they rush and they have breakfast with him after a long night of fishing. And it's a beautiful, amazing picture of God, the creator of the universe, sitting down and having breakfast with his disciples. And every time the priests in the tabernacle would walk in the showbread and sit it there, it was a picture of, again, communing with God. When Abraham and Sarah hosted the three visitors, we talked about this back in our Genesis series, they made bread and communed with God. There's a beautiful picture and precedent of God sitting and not just wanting only to say, give me your list and let me tell you all the things you're doing wrong in your life and let me tell you how to change it and fix it and here's your list and blah, blah, blah. There's not this judgment thing. It's like we get to come up on the mountain and be with him and commune with him. We get to sup with him. We get to spend this time together. And it's become part of our ritual as a church. A remembrance of all of those meals. A remembrance of Jesus's last supper, his Passover meal with his disciples. A remembrance of the many times he served fish and bread to 5,000 to 4,000. The many times he would sit down over those three-year period and sit with his disciples and share a meal and break that bread open and after his resurrection as well. We have a God that wants to be with us. We have a God that calls us beloved, that first loved us and wants to sit down and have a meal. And that's what our time with God is. It's not this high-pressured, fill-out-a-form, all my Bible verses got memorized time. It's simply a time to remember that we have been first loved. And it's why our first and core value here at Spark is love. God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for one another, and for our neighbor and for our enemy. There's just a lot of love in the Bible. Again, Nowhere else is this found in ancient Near Eastern literature or any ancient religious literature at all. Nowhere else is a God shaped by his deep love for all of creation, simply desiring to share and revel in that deep love back. We've got gods that are angry. We've got gods that like are really great at warfare or um, different crazy things, X-rated things. But we never have a God that's unrivaled in all of ancient literature. There isn't a God out there that says, I love you just because of who you are, and I want to be with you. And a God that rips open heaven to say that about his own son and sends his beloved son for us to die for us, that's a God that calls you beloved too.
Come up to me and be there. Just be. Just live with this truth, with this reality that we are loved. Father God, thank you, Lord. We bless you that you are God that longs to be with us, that seeks us out, that calls us by name, and invites us to come up into your presence and simply spend time with you. God, wherever we are on our journeys, whether we are walking closely with you or very, very far away, whether we are wondering if you even exist, God, I pray that in all of that, we would still hear your invitation to come and to be, to simply be and to be called loved. Thank you for loving us, God. Thank you for stretching all the way back into this time and calling us up into this covenant of love to a thousand generations at Sinai and reaching all the way forward and bringing us to a covenant of love through your son and into our day today for this community. And we ask, Lord, right now that all that we do would glorify you and bring more of your kingdom here on earth. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.